0: As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there, searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, Or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings.
1: Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realised it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well.
0: And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer
1: We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps.
0: We can't wait to read what
1: you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Page One Podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco. And you just heard the advert for Page One, the Writer's Notebook, and I'm very excited to say we are fully funded Fully on funded, yeah. Fully funded. Start the klaxon. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Excellent news. We're so happy. We've, we've absolutely smashed the target.
0: Yeah, and there's still time to get your Page One notebook. It's a notebook designed to help you structure and plan your story. It's got templates for characters and things like that. You've got until the 2nd of May at 3.30pm, I think it is. I think British that's right. British time. Um, so the link's in the bio, so go and grab it
1: So who do we have on this week, Marco?
0: This week we've got Mike Carey, or Mr. Carey Is the name he goes under when he's writing his novels But Mike is perhaps best known for writing comics He's written for a whole range of comics Including X-Men, Fantastic Four, uh, Lucifer He did a huge run on Lucifer Which is now a TV show, of course, on Amazon Prime Um, and he also has done Hellblazer, which is John Constantine, and he's done his own brilliant sort of creator-owned comic like The Unwritten, which we talk about in the podcast. Now, to some of you, you might be saying, I don't like comics, I'm going to turn this (laughs) off. Please don't! Because it's a really interesting chat we had with Mike, and it's really interesting just to hear the different process, and as well as comics, Mike has also written books and screenplays as well, and he talks about the difference in approach for writing for these different things so I really hope you enjoy the chat so we'll get straight into it and hope you enjoy it and we'll be back at the end of the podcast see you later it seems that you first broke into writing through comics that that, that was the starting point for you is that right
2: well, it's that, sort of an optical illusion. Okay. Um, I, I, I spent a lot of my 20s um, working on uh, novels or things that I thought of as novels. So I started out trying to write prose and, and failing pretty miserably, really, um, because I had no real understanding of structure, no, no sort of instinct for how to, um, how to make a story shapely. So I wrote these these huge baggy, uh, saggy nonsenses uh, <laughs> that, that went on for hundreds of thousands of words. And then, um, you know, in, 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 in a sort of triumph of hope over experience, I kept uh, submitting them to publishers and getting rejection slips that sometimes read, you should try writing this as a novel. Um, <laughs> and, and uh, I, I got I got discouraged around about the age of twenty seven or so. I stopped doing that, and um, I carried on writing because I love writing. Uh, but I started doing uh, comics journalism uh, in a very very small way, just writing reviews for uh, for free sheets for fanzines, mm-hmm. and then writing sort of slightly longer articles for fanzines, especially for um, uh, a fanzine called The Fantasy Advertiser, which uh, was edited by a guy I came to know quite well, Martin Skidmore. He's dead now, sadly. Um, And then through that, I began to meet people who were doing indie comics, and I started submitting pictures. Um, and got a couple of pictures accepted, so it was comics where I broke through. But that wasn't where I started in a way.
0: Right. Okay. And where did you first? Where did you first start? Was it 2000 AD that you got your first? It one? was not. Great. No. Was no. It no. Not? Okay. I, I
2: did, it, I did it, the whole thing sort of ask backwards. Um, <laughs>
0: okay.
2: My French. Am I allowed to swear? Or <laughs> yeah. No. No. That's <laughs> absolutely fine. do Worse worry. the better. <laughs> so um, there, there was very, very briefly a rival to 2000 AD called Toxic. Right with a, with an exclamation point at the end um, which was uh, published by a, a publishing entity called apocalypse press mm-hmm. it was an offshoot of a comic distributor called Neptune um, it, it was these are the days before Diamond conquered all mm-hmm. the War of F- Five different comic, comic book distribut- distributors in the UK, and Neptune was a small one, small but viable one, and they started to do their own line of comics, and I pitched a couple of things to them. Two of the, two of the pictures were accepted. One was um, a superhero story, very much inspired by Watchmen. Actually, inspired is a polite way of putting it. <laughs> and the other was a, a sort of psychological horror called Legions of Hell, Um so they 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 commissioned both of these books, and I wrote I wrote about seven or eight scripts for them, and then they they went bankrupt. They they um, their cost projections were sort of um, way too optimistic. They thought they could um, with thirty thousand sales a week that they could be uh, uh, a competitor to two thousand eight, and they would be uh, uh, viable. And it turned out that they were wrong, and they ceased trading after thirty one issues. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that, that was where I broke in. And through that, I met uh, a really nice guy, an artist named Ken Meyer Jr., who was an American. Um, he he uh, painted in acrylic. He did fully painted art. Wow. He was uh, working on the superhero story that never happened, Aquarius. Um, and he introduced me to uh, some people who were working in the indie scene in America. Uh, and one of those introductions was... Um, Really uh, really sort of faithful, uh, it was to Lorreen Haynes, uh, who was, uh, she was married to Dave Dorman mm-hmm. artist uh, of note at that time, and the two of them, Dave and Loreen, were trying to set up a, an agency for comic creators um, called big time They never to my knowledge, they never succeeded in um, setting the agency up, but Lorreen said that she would shop my stuff around, shop my uh, my pictures around in, in the u s. Um, on spec. And she said, because we're not an agency yet, I'm not going to charge you an agency fee. I'll just show your work around. Incredibly kind um, and generous. And she got me two, uh, two gigs with Malibu. Right. Uh, one was the Ozzy Osbourne comic um, mm-hmm. that I did, and uh, the other was a Pantera comic, a comic starring the heavy metal rock band <laughs> Pantera. It was not my finest hour. <laughs> I was into that into the American the American indie scene and through that I, I ended up working for Caliber for many years. Um, I did a book called Inferno for them and I did a an adaptation of the Doctor Faustus story with Mike Perkins. Um, so those were the uh, the sort of stepping stones. It wasn't until after I got Lucifer, after I'd started writing Lucifer, that I kind of doubled back and did some work for 2000 AD.
0: Okay, right. So yeah, so that that is um, an unusual route, I suppose, because uh, a lot of comics people in in the UK first get the break in 2000 AD. But you you've gone to America first and then sort of come back, as you say.
2: Yeah, I never do anything the easy way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and and how was it that you? So obviously you started. You said that you wanted to write novels, but then. Ended up doing comics After doing a bit of comics journalism and stuff how how did you get into that? Did you just give up on the novels for a bit and say I'm going to try my hand at comics?
2: Yeah, it was exactly that. Um, my wife Lynn um, claims the credit for that. She says she she said to me at, at one point. And I, th- I think she's right that um, what most of what I was reading for pleasure was comics, which is true. Um, and so yeah, she, she said, why don't you why don't you try and and pitch a comic? And it had never occurred to me. It was like uh, it was. It's strange, but I sort of saw comics as things that sprang into the world fully formed. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anybody who wrote for comics. Um, and so I, I sort of took it for granted that whatever production process there was, it was in a different, uh, yeah, a different. Level of reality than the one that I was on, and it was only through doing the uh, the, the work with Martin Martin Skidmore for um, fantasy advertiser that I came to sort of uh, to meet people who were working actually working in comics and to sort of um, to gather up the, the the sort of bottle to, to try it
0: and d- did you you know because everyone I suppose in theory knows how to write a book they sit down and they, and they, they, they write it. but a comic has that. A comic script has that has a structure of a different type of structure, i suppose did you and there are yes. it's not that easy to find or certainly it didn't used to be that easy to find you know examples and find guidance on how to do that did you did you manage to get that or did you just start
2: um well the, 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 the timing was uh, was fortuitous there, there was um, so th- this would have been sort of like late eighties and there were a couple of comic scripts available. Um, back then uh to the curious one of them, which was the one that I took as my uh, as my template, was the the script for Watchmen One okay. which was published at the back in the back of the um the collected edition the for the first collected edition of watchmen so i read alan moore 's script and thought ah so that 's how it 's done then. <laughs> Um which was, you know, in some ways unfortunate <laughs> because, uh, yeah, there is the Alan Moore method and then there's, there's everybody else, really. Um, so I, I just assumed that you have to specify every single thing, every visual element in every uh, in every panel. So I, I wrote these incredibly long, um, over-elaborate scripts, which were fairly turgid and fairly, uh, you know, they were over-complicated. Um, you know, what Alan Moore does is uh, is amazing for him. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's not necessarily the best model for for other writers. Um, it took me a long time to realize that if you specify everything in a comic script, you might just as well specify nothing because you're not telling the artist what to focus on. You're just throwing irrelevant detail at the artist. So, so my my, my scripts over the, over the sort of the course of the 1990s, they slimmed down from about. Um, Ten thousand words a pop to about four to five thousand, uh, and they became more and more fit for purpose. I mean, this this is this is something that uh, that strikes me about the whole thing. At the time when I when I kept on sort of uh, getting these gigs for publishers who um, didn't pay me, didn't publish the work, went out of business uh, in, in in the course of the uh, the. the, the the commission. It felt like I was getting nowhere, but I wasn't. It was all, it was all really really useful <laughs> experience. Yeah, you, know, mm-hmm. you you you. It was, it's the ten thousand hours thing. You you yeah. you don't sort of jump in and immediately get get a sort of intuitive grasp of how to do a thing. You do it by endless iterations. You learn how to do it yeah, by endless I, iterations.
0: And I suppose you know, and I, I, I only know this because I've got an interest in writing comic scripts as well. <clears> and I, I've heard other comic writers say. There seem to be different methods, some of which I think are maybe brought on by if you're working on a sort of monthly comic and you've got that tight deadline that you need to get the next issue out. But is it called the Marvel method or something, which is basically, it seems just to be largely an outline that you give the artist and then the artist goes for it. Um, uh, Whereas other people, like you say, obviously Alan Moore's the the extreme example, will will write every single thing in every single panel. Um,
2: Yeah, it is
0: it's a much more collaborative process i suppose than than writing a novel for example you you if you know your artist well it must be you know it, is it a more sort of even relationship in telling the story
2: yeah it definitely is i mean when it works well it is um, i mean it 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 kind of depends on how good your editor is too cuz uh, cuz the, edit, the editor is the sort of um the the conduit between um, the writer and the artist or the writer and the art team. Um, So the editor is doing their job well. Then there is communication. Um, And then you build up those relationships. You learn each other's um, strengths and weaknesses, each other's um, uh, tricks and quiddities, and and you get better at writing for Mm. a specific artist. Um, I have worked on some books where the... The first draft was the last, last draft. Yeah, where the, the agency just took what I sent in and handed it along to the artist without discussion. Yeah, um, and those were those were not great books. Um, as, as far as um, you know, different different, um, different methods of scripting go. I think the Marvel method has more or less died out now. Right. Um, it was a, I, I say that. I think Sy Spurrier told me once that he does Marvel methods sometimes and he really enjoys it. Um, it was a, it was an elegant solution to a technical problem, which was that Stan Lee was writing for, um, an entire um, bullpen full of artists, yeah. and didn't have time to um, to sort of go into to, to write full script. So he he'd, he'd write a um, a precy that would be something like Spider-Man and Doctor Octopus fighting a sewer, and he'd give it to Ditko, and Ditko would go away and and <laughs> uh, and, and draw seventeen pages. Um, but uh, the, the, the 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 snag of that is that so uh, you 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 end up you you, you so you, you you then dialogue from the finished art. Um, and the pacing isn't necessarily always right. Yeah. Um, so you get, uh, it is noticeable if you look at the early issues of um, the claremont Burn and Claremont-Cochram X-Men, that sometimes you get action scenes that are weirdly compressed and sometimes you get dialogue scenes that go on for way, way too long and there's nothing really to say. And it's because, yeah, the art was done independent of the, of the scripting and then they, the, uh, the, the writer would come back in and script afterwards. It's it's fascinating to look at um, things like the the, the Lee Kirby um, Avengers and Fantastic Four because uh, when Kirby was drawing yeah, from, from, a, from a Marvel method script that Stan had written, um, he would be drawing in the absence of any dialogue, um, and he would write in the margins what he thought was being said in the panels. And then Stan would come in and write the dialogue, and usually completely ignore um, <laughs> Kirby's suggestions, and and basically impose a different story and a different pacing on it. Um, it's it was it was a strange a strange sort of collaboration, but obviously it worked. And uh, and I think you you're absolutely right for for it to work, there has to be um, there has to be a give and take, there has to be a flow backwards and forwards. Between the writer and the artist, if the artist simply takes the um, the assembly instructions for the comic you know takes the finished script and, and draws without reference without going back to or kicking back against the writer, uh-huh. I think you end up with a fairly inert book often. Um, my best collaborations have been with people who, who uh, with with artists who, um, you know, who, who brought their own their own ideas and their own predilections to the table, so that what we ended up with was not necessarily what was in my head to start with, but was better than what was in my head to start with.
1: Well, that was what I kind of wanted to ask you about. So, so you've written screenplays, obviously for for films and for comics, and we'll we'll chat about that as well in a bit. But when you write a screenplay for a comic, you obviously have an image in your head of what it will look like, but then. How, do you does that change completely sometimes from what you've written down when you have your chat with the artist? Does that I mean, I mean, how much a say do you like to have over the, over the end product if he comes on and says I think it would be better doing it this way?
2: Well, I, I usually start off as a control freak. If I'm working with an artist <laughs> I don't know, then I write that very full script, Okay. and I specify, um, you know. A lot of detail and I'm, I'm sort of like keeping a tight rein on basing on page turns on panel counts um everything that begins with p um once i get to know an artist i'll loosen up and yeah but my, my scripts for peter gross on lucifer and on the unwritten uh-huh. i'll just i'll basically say you know this is the effect we're going for here
1: yeah
2: um is <laughs> into hate, yeah, you know, go and have a good time. Um, and P- Peter Peter is a great example of an artist who would take the the script as basically the first phase of a negotiation, rather mm-hmm. rather rather than as an end point. Mm-hmm. Um, the example I always use is from Lucifer. We had a character in Lucifer called uh, Christopher Rudd who was a, a, a basically good man, a, a more or less decent man, who had committed one terrible, unforgivable sin. He kills a child, and he kills a child in a moment of rage, brought on by jealousy. Um, so he accepts that he belongs in hell. He, 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 doesn't, he doesn't sort of aspire to escape or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a, there's a point in the story where you get this this kind of, this backstory for him. And I wrote it as a three-page sequence, with the normal panel count, five or six panels per page. And Peter said, the thing about this is he's, he's basically going over those memories every single second of every day that he's in hell. Uh-huh. So it doesn't make sense to tell that story only once. We should tell it a 100 times. And he turned the pages into these tiny, tiny, these sort of like tessellations of mm-hmm. tiny panels, which repeated the, the visual motifs in the story three, four, five, six times over. Um, and it was much better as a way as a way of getting that story across. It was much better than what I had.
0: But that that's the thing that comics can do, isn't it? It's that um, the the best comics do that. They they have that more than just. Here's the story. Here's what the people are saying. It's that visual element that yeah. can that can really lift a great comic yeah. up, up from the pack. I think.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's um it's a medium where you have um, you have different channels of information, but they and they're coming through to you in the same sense. So if you're watching a movie, that's a terrible way of putting it. If you watch a movie, you hear the soundtrack and you watch the visuals. In a comic, you watch the soundtrack and you watch the visuals. Uh-huh. Um, everything is coming to you through the visual sense, but you have parallel or divergent or convergent paths through that through that sense. It's, it's, uh, it's unique in that way, I think. You know, you've got your captions and you've got your sound effects and you've got your dialogue. And they're they're in the visual field, and within the visual field, time turns to space. When you're reading one panel, you're look you're sort of peripherally looking at the panel before, mm. and then the panel after. Yeah. So rather than following a single second, like a, a mono, monofilament, as you do in a movie or mm. in a TV show, you're actually you're swimming in a lake of moments mm. and, and of convergent moments, overlapping moments.
0: Yeah, and that must be you know in a in a novel you might want to end each chapter on a particular you know tension point or something so that it leads into the next one and in a screenplay as well you do the same with scenes but as you with a comic as you say because you can kind of see see what's coming almost even if you're not looking at it directly it's a, it 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 takes a different skill to write that i think
2: it's, yeah it does I, I think this is why um why Alan Moore went for the nine-panel grid in Watchmen, wasn't it? That yeah. He wanted to create um, the, the effect of a proscenium arch. If, if, if all of the panels are the same size and shape, then the panels become invisible, um, and, and you're simply following the thread of the action. Um, it, 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 it's why I, in a, in a weird way, it's why I had very, very few splashes and spreads in Lucifer, um, which was my first monthly comic book, because I kind of rebelled against the splash and the spread because they're cut loose from narrative time. They're moments that you simply... You, 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 you sort of immerse yourself suddenly in this, yeah. in this, in this stillness, in this tableau. And it seemed to me that very often that you do that at the expense of the forward momentum of the story. So I would always cheat, you know, Shelley, Shelly Bond was my editor on Lucifer, um, through the entire run, oh, almost the entire run. Mariah Mar- Mar- Huna, um, took over from her at one point um but Shelley would say you know give the artist room to to breathe give the artist spreads and splashes so that they can you know they, they, they can sort of strut their stuff um but I would always cheat by having a panel at top left or a panel at bottom right to sort of either launch you into it or pull you back into the story after it
1: and is it is there like a difference in your head then between uh, writing something that you come up with yourself or playing in a sandbox of s- someone else's kind of universe, like X Men or something. Is there is there a preference that you have there, or a freedom?
2: Um, there's certainly no, there's no preference. They're, def- they're different pleasures. They really are, um, and they scratch different itches. I mm-hmm. mean, <clears throat> so, some of the some of the greatest fun I ever had was writing X Men because you know, for the simple reason that when I was a child, I really loved those books. Yeah. I sort of grew up, grew up sort of immersed in that universe. Um, and then it was X-Men, when I was in my teens, it was X-Men that pulled me back into comics after a period when I didn't read them much. It was Claremont's uh, reinvention of the X-Men that turned me into a, into a regular comics reader again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so yeah, the, the pleasure of taking those characters and those um, those storylines and adding to them was, was incredible. Um, after I did my, my, my first ever storyline on X-Men introduced a new group of villains, the Children of the Vault,
0: mm-hmm.
2: who were sort of post-humans but not mutants. And about two or three months into my run, someone sent me a link to a Wikipedia article about the Children of the Vault. And I thought, oh my God, I'm in canon. I'm canonical. <laughs>
0: You've made it.
2: <laughs> it, was, uh, it was a wonderful moment. So yeah, the, 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 that is a, a great pleasure, I think. And if you're writing in the American mainstream, that's very much the nature of the gig. Most of the work that you do will be with characters who've been created um, decades before and have been through the hands of numerous creative teams. Um, and so you write both uh, with with respect for what's come before and with a, a sort of an aim to put your own mark on the story as well, to do something with those characters that hasn't been done before, perhaps. Um, but it's also great to create a universe that's just your own Um And to to sort of like be completely in control of the uh, of the backstory of the rules of engagement and so on.
0: I was going to ask, when you are working on a book (coughs) that is a, a Marvel book or a DC book or something that is, you know, long running, do you do you have meetings that say, right, this is where, you know, in in 50 issues, this is where we need to be. So you you have a little bit of freedom to take us where you want, but that's these are the sort of blocks that you need to hit along the way.
2: Um, it's it's almost the opposite of that. No, right, nobody okay. is no, nobody is looking fifty issues ahead. Um, the, the, the only times I've done that is when it was a creator-owned book like um, uh, the Unwritten. Mm-hmm. I would I would. In the initial pitch, I'd indicate some things that were going to happen at the end, just to give to, to give the impression that I had a sense of direction. Um, but on X Men and on Ultimate Fantastic Four, the planning was done at most a year ahead, right. uh, usually like half a year to a year ahead. Marvel would have the creative retreats twice a year. They'd take all of the editors and the writers out to either either to um, New York or to Marvel West um, and stick us in a room. <clears> then <throat> we'd work out the plot beats um, for then for the next the next few issues. It was it was almost all you know the, the, the scene in Wallace and Gromit the Wrong Trousers where they're on they're on the runaway toy train and and Gromit <laughs> is laying down the track immediately. <laughs> the it felt it felt like that that there's an exhilaration because really you're just an inch above the road you're you're, you're hurtling along um, and you're you're um, you're only just you're know, only just keeping things. Um, together in the short term. Um, there is no, there's very little long term planning.
1: That is interesting. And that's almost, I mean, that's certainly from modern comics. Is that still the same way now with all the event stuff? I, mean, I know, I know, can Marvel went through a big phase of Dark Reign, uh, Secret Invasion, House of M, you know, and it seemed like every year, every 18 months, there was a big event and everything. Seem to lead up to that and then fall out from that. Was so? The, was the planning for that? Was that more of a long term planning as opposed to just?
2: Well, the, 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 so the events, the events are the the sort of like the um, the structural um, components of of that planning. Mm-hmm. Um, I came on board um you know in the immediate aftermath of House of M mm-hmm. and we were building up well first of all we built up to um Messiah complex and then to Second Coming and along the way there were things like you know, Secret Invasion which were not X-Men events they yeah. were line wide events that some of the X-books keyed into and some of them didn't and there were, other, there, there, were there were many things like that were you kind of you could choose which um which of the things that was coming up you could you could plug your book into, oh, but right. even there you're, you're only talk, you're only talking about a, a year ahead a year out
1: that's interesting it, it, cause it always does seem like there's a lot more planning you know it seems like they have been planning it for for years sometimes, but it sounds like it is just very much off the cuff almost or more relaxed but, than it than it actually is.
2: That that was my experience. De- not not relaxed, but, uh, but kind of a, a, a ferment of um, of imagination and invention, building up to something that's in the middle distance, not in the long, not in the long distance. I oh, mean, yeah, it may well be that the senior editors had more of a sense of the long term goals, um, but what we were doing was engaging with a set of ongoing plot lines. Building to a climax, which would then um, create a new status quo and build to another climax, and so on and so forth. It was different. I mean, to be fair, it was different at, um, at DC, but it, I never worked in the DC universe. Um, mm-hmm. All my work was in Vertigo, yeah. and that was. It felt like there was a more, more there was more deliberation there. Um, the pitching process took longer, sometimes incredibly much longer. You'd pitch something, and a year later, you'd still be doing, you'd still be polishing the pitch. Um, (laughs) And so, I I guess that's the difference between a franchise, which is um, a sort of a a moving juggernaut, a fast moving juggernaut, um, where where you've got dozens and dozens of books coming out every month, and a single creator owned title that you're curating Mm -hmm. with the aid of one editor.
0: Well, just moving on from that, on to the unwritten, um, which is your your creator-owned story. How did that come about? You know, it's, it's a it's a very good hook, I think. The idea. So was it was it quite an easy pitch to to give? I, I should say to people what the hook is, perhaps, um, which is that it's it's a. Harry Potter-like character, is it okay to say that? Um, I think it's okay
2: to say that, yeah. yeah um,
0: <laughs> who, uh, who effectively comes out of the book into into reality. Is, it, is that a fair summary?
2: Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, or you have a character who may or may not be yes, a fictional, so, so, yes, <laughs> a fictional character. Yes, <laughs> um, he, he wants very much not to be Harry Potter, but maybe he is. Yes. Um, so so, what happened there? When, when when Peter Gross and I got to the end of Lucifer, we really wanted to carry on working together. Mm-hmm. So we started putting pitches in, uh, and this is, a, I guess, a good illustration of um, how the the Vertigo pitching process worked. Mm-hmm. We 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 came up with, I mean, I'm not exaggerating when I say over a dozen different pitches which got to different stages of development in one case we had a, a series called Dead Easy which seemed to be green lit we'd worked on many many different um, drafts of the pitch we'd talked to uh, Shelley about it we'd talked to Karen Berger who was the head of Vertigo mm-hmm. and she'd talked to Paul Levitz who at that time was the publisher and it seemed like it hit everybody's sweet spots and we were waiting for the green light and it never came we were never officially stood down but the book never never got accepted um, and we 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 got discouraged after um a lot a long a long time of doing this more than a year of doing this uh, peter went away and did um american jesus uh-huh. with mark miller um i went and did a lot of work for marvel and then we were both at uh, san diego comic con in i want to say maybe 2007 2008 um around about then um and Ponsac was there. Ponsac Pichette showed, the Vertigo editor, was there. And the three of us um, met up and we we started chatting about stories and things. Um, and Peter had an idea for a story that would follow the same character in real life and in a story. So you'd have a hero or I think it was a heroine, it was a, um, a young girl in the original um, bit and her father was writing stories about her so you'd see her real life and then you'd see the idealized version of her life that her father was creating and I had an idea about the magic trumpet uh, the trumpet that uh-huh. in, in Hindu mythology signals the end brings about the end of one yuga one age of the earth and the start of the next and the idea was that a character finds the trumpet, blows it, and reconfigures reality. And then is trying to find um, the woman he loved in the previous version of reality. Um, which actually is a pretty shitty idea when I come to think of it. <laughs> so, what Pornsex said, what if they were the same idea? What if you put both of those things into the same story? And we sort of laughed politely and uh, went away. But then uh, I was reading... Um, the Enchanted Places, the first volume of Christopher Milne's autobiography, where he talks about being Christopher Robin in Winnie the Pooh mm-hmm. and what, what dif- the difference that made in his life, um, for the worse, not for the better, and that was kind of the cement that brought the two ideas together. I showed it to Peter, and we we created um, a pitch for the Unwritten, which was at that time we were calling the Faction, and it, it wasn't it wasn't easy to get it accepted. Everybody liked the the premise. But uh, We still had to go through i think it was six different drafts of the pitch and then six different drafts of a kind of series overview document um so it took it took it took many months still, but Ponsac was determined that it would happen. he just kept on sort of um uh, calling us up putting us together on conference calls so that we could go over it again and again and again it was um It was very much a um a, a three way collaboration mm-hmm. in that between the two of us and and uh
0: well, I mean, it, it, it was good that it <laughs> eventually got there because it is a great series. Um, Thank you. And it, it re, no, I just read it recently, actually, and really loved it. Um, and then, so comics, obviously, are what got you the, the break into writing. But you <laughs> still, obviously, harboured that that sense that you <laughs> wanted to, you wanted to write a novel, um, and you started writing. Was it the Felix Caster series? Yeah. You know how did how did that come about after your comics or with your comics work? It was alongside, it, I suppose.
2: Um, it, it was definitely because of the comics work. Because by that point, I was writing uh, Lucifer. I was probably about five years into Lucifer, uh, and I was also writing Hellblazer. Mm-hmm. And I, I showed I showed some of my Hellblazer issues to Darren Nash, who was the um, the commissioning editor at Orbit. Uh, and used it as a calling card, and said, "Yeah, you know, it would be, it would be something like this." And Darren was um, was very uh, very much a comics fan, and uh, he, he he was very mu- he was up for me doing uh, a novel or possibly a series of novels that had some of the flavour mm-hmm. of Hellblazer, but with a different protagonist. And I think if you look at the first the first book um, Devil You Know, Castor is basically John Constantine. Mm-hmm. Um, just with a diff, slightly different style of trench coat. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's only in the, uh, in the subsequent books that he sort of modulates into the, his own character and the world starts to grow and to become its own thing. But it grew out, it grew out of the work that I did on Hellblazer.
1: And then of course, we have to have a chat about The, the Girl with All the Gifts, which was, of course, the, the big book that I think a lot of people will know you from who are perhaps uh, up to date with your work on the comic stuff. And how did that come around?
2: Um, so that was um, that was just incredible serendipity really there 's an awful lot to be said for being taken out of your comfort zone. So I went straight from comics into novels, um, and from two thousand and five onwards, the novels were a sort of as big a part of my creative life as the comics were in terms of the time I was putting into them um, what i hadn 't done was short stories or at least i hadn 't done short stories in prose. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved doing the done in one issues of the, of, um, Lucifer and the unwritten. Because yeah. in both of those books, I was kind of borrowing Neil, the, 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 structure that Neil Gaiman, um, used so well in Sandman, which was to alternate, um, and I guess ultimately it goes back to Alan Moore's swamp thing, to alternate long arcs with done in one issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the done in one issues would then feed into the sort of, um, the ongoing fabric of the larger work in, in unexpected ways. So I'd done that in comics, but I'd never done it in prose. And I had a kind of, I had a hankering to try it. Um, and then Charlene Harris and Tony Kellner approached me and invited me to write a story for an anthology that they were putting together. And this was an annual event for them. They did it, um, every year they would do an anthology based around a really banal and everyday and harmless theme. Uh, like one year it was family vacations another year it was um, home improvements and this year it was um, school days and I created the character of Melanie in a short story uh, named Iphigenia and Alice. and it was really just the first few chapters of the novel Yeah, uh, up to the point where the, where the the base falls apart wrote it, sent it in um, it was well received it was actually uh, nom- nominated for um, for a couple of awards including a a Derringer Award, which is a short mystery fiction award, um, but I, I kind of I couldn't put the character down, and I couldn't put the voice down. I was just convinced that there was something more to be told here, uh, and so I, I, I went to my publishers and uh, and asked permission not to write the book that I was commissioned to write next, which was a, a mainstream conspiracy thriller. Uh, I said I want to write this book instead. Um, and they took a bit of convincing initially, but they did like the short story, and so eventually they said, Yeah, okay, fair enough, do it. Um, and I wrote Girl with All the Gifts, and at the same time, um, I pitched the same idea to a producer um, who I was working with, Camille Gatan, and that's how the movie came about. So the um the movie is not really an adaptation of the novel. Uh, they're, they're both adaptations of the short story,
0: and you were writing <coughs> those at the same time. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I how, really like, how did you how did you do that? How do you write a book and a screenplay at the same time, even if it, it is the same story? It's it's not, you know.
2: It was, it was surprisingly easy because for that very reason, because they're because they are so different. Because uh-huh. basically, every medium is a is a different toolbox and it does different things uh, in different ways. Um, Working on two different versions of the story kind of clarified what were the key, the key turning points, the key moments that the story had to, um, yeah. had to be built around. So each version made the other one easier. Um, having said that, movies have a different gestation period than novels. Uh, the novel came out in January 2014. We didn't go to principal photography on the movie until um, May of 2015. So there was a year and a half um, after the novel came out two years or more after i'd finished writing the novel and handed in the final draft right. when i was still working on the movie and still thinking about those characters and still thinking about the uh, um the, the 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 way to the way to articulate that story and i think some of the later scenes in the movie are better than there than the corresponding scenes in the book especially the final confrontation between melanie and caldwell mm-hmm. uh, i just think it it articulates better in the movie, um, but that, so that's that, that's how it happened. It was just the happy accident of being asked to write this story, having no idea at all uh, how to get into it, trying something completely different, and it worked.
1: And then, and then I wanted to ask about the sequel, the boy in the bridge, and how did this come about? Was this because obviously it's it is obviously the same universe as the girl with all the gifts, and there is a link to it, but it's not really a Direct sequel, I suppose. I no, don't want to spoil no, it necessarily, but how did you, was it something you had in your head, or was it, did you, you know, were you asked to do a sequel and you thought, well, how would I fit one in and try to work out a way to do it?
2: It, it? it certainly wasn't in my head when I wrote um, Girl. Mm-hmm. I, I, th- I thought Girl was done in one. Um and so the next thing I wrote after that was Fellside the uh, the prison drama the ghost story set in a women's prison. Uh so I had no intention of writing a sequel or of revisiting that world. Um but it was kind of hard not to. Uh having spent um you know so long on the movie, having sort of carried on lingering in that world and actually getting to step into that world as a um as an extra in the movie. Um okay. I kept I just kept on thinking about it and kept on thinking about what else could you do um, with that situation and I, 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 I emphatically didn't want to write a sequel because what happens at the end of girl with all the gifts is such a such a game changer yeah,
1: yeah.
2: for that world um, you, you would have to write the sequel would have to be in a completely different genre mm-hmm. um, it would be a, it would be a story about the foundation of a new world and um, but I thought that there was there was room for a story that would well. There's there's a point when you're writing a novel, where it starts it, you start to narrow down toward the ending, toward the climax. But when you're writing the early chapters and you're laying out the world, there's a sense of expansiveness, and you're just like following up all these ideas and putting in all this furniture and then there's a point where you have to sort of stop with all that nonsense and you have to start bearing down and sort of heading towards the the ending and making the ending work and when you're in that second phase there are a lot of things that go untold because there isn't any room for them um and in go with all the gifts one of the things that's untold is what the hell is this huge mobile laboratory just doing (laughs) Standing in the middle of nowhere with the keys in the ignition, um, how did how did Rosie come to be there with a single dead body, in the in the um, in the cockpit, mm-hmm. uh, who may even have committed suicide? Um, and I thought you could tell that story in a way that kind of illuminated Melanie's world from a different angle. And then I, I thought I could also cheat and do a tiny bit of a sequel. So right at the end of Boy on the bridge, you get a glimpse of what the world is like. After Melanie, um, so it was that really. It was just it was it, it was something that allowed me to go back into that world where I had, where I had such a good time and um, and do something different with it. But it wasn't planned.
0: All your all your work has a has a a tinge of horror around it, I suppose, um, albeit uh, not not in the sort of in your face type horror. You, you know, even Girl with All the Gifts has zombies in it, but I wouldn't have really categorised it as a horror film or anything like that, but is that the sort of world that you always want to, you, you always have an element of that in in your stories?
2: I think that there's always, so my, my, my comfort zone is fairly wide, you know, it goes all the way from um, you know, from horror through dark fantasy into sort of classic fantasy, mm-hmm. into science fiction, into magic realism even. What I can't write is I can't write outside of genre. I can't. I can't do main, mainstream literary fiction. I have tried just for my own, um, my own sort of amusement, and it doesn't work. It feels like I'm painting in black and white instead of in colour. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I love genre, uh, but I love that that whole sort of expanse of genres, and I love that we live in an age when. The labels matter less than they did when it's possible to yeah. do genre fusion and not even apologise for it. So I, I think I think you're right about Go with All the Gifts. It's, it's got zombies in, but you know they're plague zombies. They're not magic zombies. They're not, um, undead supernatural zombies, uh, and the rationale is a scientific rationale. So it's it's sci-fi. It's it's a dystopian apocalyptic post-apocalyptic futuristic sci-fi novel that is also a zombie novel. And that isn't even <laughs> rare now. You know, that's, uh, that's a, um, that's a subgenre genre of, of, of zombie fiction now, I think. Uh, quite an established one.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. That I, I think it is, certainly from my point of view, because it's what I like as well, it's very refreshing that there isn't that snootiness that there perhaps once mm. was, that, you know, something has to be literary to be um, worthy of praise. Uh, you know, it, Genre stories can be great and can yeah. be literary as well, but yeah. they're not. They're not looked down on in the way that they once were.
2: I think. I think. Yeah. The most. Some. Some of the most uh, vital and some of the most um, uh, significant work that's being done is being done in genre. Mm-hmm.
0: I, 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 I saw there was a quote from Ian McEwan today, actually, that was mm, <laughs> somewhat <yeah>. snooty about <laughs> science fiction. So, yeah. but it's interesting because
1: yeah, you have a look at stuff that's big in the cinema right now, and you've got you know you've got the Avengers in one hand, and you've got Logan on the other, and they're both completely different films, but they're both tied in that kind of kind of comic universe, and it's and they're both massive successes. Yeah, it's kind of it's still kind of strange to think that these films in this kind of genre element is so big right now when 10, 20 years ago it was. No, you know, it was, it was on the sidelines almost.
2: I, th- I think we, we all owe a huge debt of gratitude to Peter Jackson. You know, if it, yeah. been, if it hadn't been for the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I don't think there would have been the appet- appetite, um, at studio level to, to put all this sort of money and all this risk into, into long-form comic book narrative mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> in cinema, and that's what we're getting we're, yeah, for the yeah. first time we're getting um, cinema uh, storytelling that is as complex and convoluted as the stories are in the comics themselves.
0: Mm-hmm. Multiverses and things
1: like. <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah. No, it's absolutely fantastic. As a, as a fan of that stuff, yeah, it's fantastic absolutely.
0: And in terms of uh, films, are you uh, working on any... I think you said you were working on a screenplay at the moment. Is that right?
2: I am, yes. I I don't think I'm allowed to uh, to announce it. Well, actually, I'm working working on two, and I can talk about one of them. So one of them is a a collaboration with uh, uh, some American um, production entities, and it's based on an existing um, uh, IP, an existing story. Mm. I don't think I can announce that, but the other the other movie that I'm working on is um is based on Fellside, oh, right. uh, the, the 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 ghost story that I wrote in between Girl with All the Gifts and Boy on the Bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm doing that with uh, with uh, development money from the BFI and working once again um, with uh, Colin McCarthy, who is the director of Girl with All the Gifts, and Camille Gatan, who was the lead producer uh, on Girl with All the Gifts. So it's. Uh, it's wonderful to be brilliant. to be collaborating with them again they're, they're amazing people and just uh, brilliant to work with
1: when you when you do write is there any any rules that you try to stick by you know everyone knows the write what you know type things but is there anything that you like to to, to stick with
2: um, I, can, I can I can speak to write right what you know because obviously, Obviously, there's a sense in which if you've written a novel that's a ghost story set in a women's prison and you're a guy <laughs> and you're alive, <laughs> you're probably not writing what you know. Um, I, I, th- I think write what you know is a little bit of a death trap because it's, it's, it shouldn't mean write about your own experience in, in a sense of you know, write about the people and the settings um, that, that, that are familiar to you. I think what you know is people. You, you you use your the, the 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 relationships you've had. You use your your yeah. um your, real people as the basis for your fictional creations, and that's what gives life to them and makes them feel. If you're doing it right, makes them feel convincing. Um, but you can write when it when it comes to to plot and and setting and theme. The hell with what you know. <laughs> it's it's, <so laughs> it's spread your spread your wings and write about anything. I think. Um, go as far outside what you know as you possibly can.
0: Yeah, I think, I think that's right. We were, actually, it was, we were speaking to, um, uh, another author recently, Adrian J. Walker, who wrote The End of the World Running Club. And he was saying very much the same sort of thing that, you know, it's, it's writing, it's taking, you know, if you have an emotion that you can bring to a story or an observation, but it's not, you know, I've, I've been, I've worked in an office, so my story has to be writing about offices and things like that, definitely. Yeah. Um, there's,
2: there's, a, there's, a great, there's a great quote from G.K. Chesterton where he's talking about miracles, miracles in fiction. Uh-huh. And he said, basically, so long as you set it up, the audience will, uh, will accept any miraculous coincidence, any preposterous uh, and unlikely event. What will kill your story in a second is a moral miracle. A character doing something that the audience know that character would not do. Mm-hmm. If, if if you cross that line, then you lose, you lose everything.
1: Yeah, I I think that is absolutely true, and I think we've all seen stuff on TV or read stuff where someone does something because the plot says they have to be in yeah. A to B, and you know that doesn't feel right. And even if you don't understand why, it just doesn't feel right on a on a base level, and and it it does lose you. It just you. takes you out of the story. Exactly. Yeah. 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 yeah.
2: You saw it on on Lost. I mean, I was, I was a big fan of Lost, mm-hmm. but uh, it really annoyed me how in the later seasons a crisis would come up and it would be like every character would state a position in relation to that crisis and it would always just be done to to create maximum drama and therefore <laughs> yeah, they, 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 they would just go against everything they'd stood for the last time for the sake of the surprise this time.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Lost is an example. Of, like, I loved Lost. Oh, Certainly the initial yeah, yeah. series, you know, the start of it, but they just... They obviously never quite had a plan, despite what they said. (laughs) And at the the end, they were just throwing lots of sort of, this is a mystery, this is a mystery, without ever any intention of answering it all, which ended up being quite frustrating, really.
2: By by, by contrast, uh, this this is a small example, but I I, I really love the moment in Civil War when Captain America refuses to sign the registration Mm act. Because he's 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 the one guy who you would expect to have the respect for authority to toe the line, yeah. but actually the authority he respects is bigger. It's bigger than the government. It's it's uh, it's, it's a it's a commitment to an ideal, yeah. and it, he, he will defy any any lower authority in order to hold faith with that ideal. It's just it's the perfect beat for him. It's 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 really surprising, and then you think, yeah, but it's inevitable.
1: Yeah, actually, that's a really good point. I think he's actually a perfect example of someone, especially when they bring him, you know, in his first kind of outing, he's fighting the Nazis, and he's it's very kind of easy to know what side he's on. And then when they, when they bring him back into the modern world, it would be very easy to say, right now you fight on the side of America as it is now, and uh, and that's that. But they take a they take a much more interesting approach with them and say. No actually the America that he knows has changed and it's he is the same person he's always yep. been but it's the it's the is the the America that's changed and has actually in some ways become the enemy and that and that I thought was a really interesting way to keep him relevant and not just make him the kind of poster boy for whatever America's doing.
2: Yeah, it's brilliant in Civil War. It's mm. brilliant in Winter Soldier when he has that argument about surveillance with Nick yes. Fury.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: I mean that is probably the difference isn't it in between The, the Marvel films and the DC films and that the, you know, they've, they've got the characters and the Mm. the characters stick to what they're, (laughs) what they're meant to be doing, whereas the DC ones haven't, at least uh, in the initial ones anyway.
2: Yeah, I mean, but Batman branding people. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) Branding. So they get killed, exactly. Missing the point of the character (laughs) somewhat, I would just say.
2: I think think it's it's, it's a shame in a way that Dark Knight was such a great success. I mean, it it was a deserved success, but they seem to have spent the next uh, decade just basically trying to do the same thing again and again and failing again.
0: Not understanding that other characters aren't, you know, Superman doesn't need to be grim and gritty like Batman was. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, it's a diff- different sort of thing but ho- ho- they seem to be steadying the ship a bit I think uh, I've heard Shazam's good I saw it. It. I saw
1: it yesterday Much I'm, I'm, better. Curious. It was, I'm curious it was actually. my favourite of the DC stuff lately definitely
0: yeah I'll definitely be checking that out um, and this is maybe a silly question given your prolific output but do you, do you ever suffer from writer's block Well, I have I have good days and bad
2: days. I mean, there are definitely days when I spend way too long looking out of the window. Um, The best advice I was ever given um, as a writer was: if you can't do it wrong, do it. Sorry, if you can't do it right, do it wrong. Mm -hmm. So don't stare at the blank page. Get something down, however awful it is, and then when you've got it down, look at it and think: well, that's awful because, and that'll sort of point you in the right direction. Right. Okay. So my solution to write this block is to just put down some blather yeah and then and then and then critique it
1: and 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 what's in the in the future for you then are you going to continue playing in all fields you know in the comics and the books and this in the screenplays or is there anything else you'd like to work on
2: Um, I I, I found my limits, I think, because I I have tried, there are some forms of writing that I've tried and and failed miserably at. I've done a couple of radio dramas.
1: Okay.
2: And I I think it's fair to say they were awful. (laughs) And I've done a couple of, I've, I've tried to write for games a couple of times. And I just find writing for games incredibly frustrating because, You're trying to very often you're trying to create a a, a sort of a polysemic space where lots and lots of different stories Uh are inscribing themselves, and I I can't I can't let go of control to that degree. So I know I know what I can't do, or at least I know some of the things I can't do. I would love at some point to write for theatre, but I don't know how to how you go about doing that. Uh Apart from that, I'm happy to sort of uh, to keep on working in in all the different fields that I do write in because I think I think picking up and putting down different media, you know, moving from comics to prose to screenplays back to comics, I think it it, it helps to keep you fresh mm-hmm. because you're using different skill sets and you're using different um, different storytelling strategies. What what I what I want to avoid. Um, is the situation where I'm just telling the same story again and again, and I think that's an easy trap for a writer to fall into, yeah. because you're the last person to know. Um, you know, other people will spot your recurring themes and your obsessions long before you do. You'll think this is radically different when actually all you've done is change the color of the uh, of the fabric on the on the f- furniture. So yes, I want to carry on working.
0: <laughs> and are there any uh, existing? you know long-standing comics properties that you would like to have a play in that you haven't done yet
2: not really no um i i, I think probably my days of working on big franchise books are are over and done with um <clears throat> I, I did i did genuinely love writing on x-men and i, and I loved writing on ultimate fantastic four but it's uh it's a specific kind of commitment. In order to write for an X Men book, you've got to be up on what's happening in all the other X Men books, mm-hmm. and to a certain extent, you've got to be up on everything else that's happening in the Marvel universe. Yeah. And keeping your antennae out like that is a big outlay of time. Um, and now there are just so many other things that I'm doing. I don't think I would be able to do that. Um, and, I, and I'm way behind in both the DCU and the Marvel universe. I've got no idea what's What's going on there currently? So it would take a, an enormous commitment up front to get back um, into into a sort of a position of sort of knowing what was what, knowing where everything was. It's kind of like trying to jump on board a moving train.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I'm not young enough.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm always amazed at someone like uh, Grant Morrison when he did his run on on the Batman comics. How he, you know, he brought in aspects of the whole of Batman's history how you can even begin to try and tie all of that and get on top of all of that is, 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 is beyond me. But, you know, it it worked in a in yeah. this sort of mad Grant Morrison way. I that didn't
1: it understand it at all at the end, but it was very <laughs> compelling.
0: Actually, since
2: you mentioned Grant Morrison, there is just one, maybe one, um, franchise property that if it was offered me, I wouldn't be able to say no to, and that's Grant Morrison-era Doom Patrol. Mm-hmm. If there was a chance to tell a story against that backdrop, you know, with Robot Man and Crazy yeah. Jane and Rabus and Niles Calder, I would I would I might I might very well try and do that. But having said that, I think he's an impossible act to follow. I think if you if you step onto a book after Grant leaves it, your choice is to try and be Grant, in which case people will hate you, or to do something <laughs> different, in which case people will hate you. Yeah,
0: no, I think that's <laughs> right. You want to you want to leave it a couple of creators before you step step <laughs> yeah. back into that one. Um, Well, we like to wrap up uh, every podcast with sort of quick-fire questions, so um, if we can give you some. um, Okay. Batman or Superman?
2: Um, Batman, I think, yeah. Uh,
1: Star Wars or Star Trek?
2: Star Trek, especially Next Generation.
1: (laughs) Excellent choice.
0: A real book or an e-book?
2: Real book, oh, books have got a smell of something Yeah, exactly,
0: <laughs> I agree
1: So what about the convenience of being able to just have a thousand books in your pocket and go on holiday?
2: It's great for holidays and it's great for research It's shit for everything else
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough um, Get Out or Us? Oh, that's
2: a tough one um, Marginally Us Oh really? Maybe, maybe that's just because I saw it more recently.
1: <laughs> uh, I have to say, I thought I thought his first film was was miles better than I didn't really get on with us very much at all.
2: It's it's crazy and it's structurally it's weird. It mm. takes some tonal shifts along the way that are hard to uh, hard to fathom. But I just thought Lupita Nyong'o is
1: well, she was fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, In that's, both that's those yeah.
0: And uh, last one, uh, Walking Dead or Game of Thrones.
2: Game of Thrones. Correct.
0: Have you watched the first episode yet?
2: No, but I may be getting my hands on a bootleg earlier. <laughs> <laughs> lately,
0: lately, today, so, uh. Excellent. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I, I really enjoyed chatting to Mike.
1: Yeah, really nice guy.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I'm a... Hands up, I'm a, I'm a big comic fan, so it was really great to have the chance to speak to him in, in depth like that. And just really interesting to hear how it is that he, he manages to write across these different mediums from comics to books to screenplays and how each one kind of helps helps the other.
1: Yeah, and for me, I know him more from the girl with all the gifts uh, rather than the comic stuff that he's also done. Um, so I found it really interesting, the way that he'd written the book and the screenplay at the same time and one informed the other and the way it almost helped him realise what was important about the story it's a, obviously not yeah. everyone can do that but it's a really good way to and see it it
0: was, it was interesting wasn't it that he they're, they're the same story but they're not the same story yeah. you know they ended up being different in some ways and when you're starting from the same point it's quite funny how that can be the case.
1: I think that's right and I suppose when you're writing a film we've said before on the podcast that you don't have any of the inner kind of character stuff. So that's more of a book thing. But when when you've got the book fleshing out the characters so well, that must make it a lot easier to write them on the screen.
0: Yeah. And writing about comics as well, I I thought, you know, there's these different methods. I mentioned the Marvel method, which is this sort of basic outline method, which Stan Lee invented, but it sounds like has largely died out. But even the medium is a different thing. And it's maybe something that people that don't read comics a lot, Fully get, but there is that thing that, as he was saying, you've, you've always got the the next and the last panel in your vision. So you ha the best comic writers will take advantage of that and tell the story through the page, even knowing that you can see what's about to happen Absolutely. and
1: things like that. We've all read a bad one where suddenly something is completely spoiled because you've seen the image before you really should have.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, the, the best ones take advantage of it. Like, and, you know, like he was given that example, um, from Lucifer about the, the hundred different occasions in hell, repeating mm-hmm. and repeating and repeating. That's, that's something that comics as a medium can do that, not even film can really do. It's a it's a it's a it is its own medium Absolutely. and really interesting. And you
1: compare something like that to something like Watchmen and they look completely different. Mm-hmm. The panel layout was totally different and there is a lot more scope there than people realise, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Um and a big Game of Thrones fan as well, by the like, same
1: yeah, uh, have you you be watching the new series?
0: I have. I've seen the first two episodes now, so um enjoying it already for the Battle of Winterfell.
1: Yeah, I have to say I've two episodes in as well, four left to go. I, I, can't, I can't see where it's going from here. Is it going to all wrap up with the final battle? Is it just going to be four episodes of fighting?
0: I think it might be. There'll certainly be a lot of death. <laughs>
1: yeah, I'll be surprised if that many people get away from
0: next week, to mind at the end of the season. Exactly. Well, we can see where we are uh, after next week's episode but I imagine probably half the cast will be dead. <laughs> but um, who have we got on
1: next week? Next week we have Helen Fitzgerald who is the Author of the Cry, um, you may have seen that on TV. It was adapted into a BBC drama.
0: Um, yeah, it was good, but yeah. as a parent, pretty distressing <laughs> to say.
1: Yeah, um, the book is is excellent. The the setup for the book, the first act, is one of the most impressive first acts I've read for a while. I read on a plane, and yeah, it's just it, it really grabs you, and it's
0: a it's a really really good book. Yeah, so we're looking forward to speaking to Helen about that. Um, Thanks, as always, to Simon Stokes for his production assistance. If you're wanting to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at right underscore gear and you can email us at podcast at rightgear.co.uk.
1: But until next week, we'll leave you with one last little advert for page one, the Writer's Notebook. Remember, it's on Kickstarter. You've still got just under one week left, so please do go up there If we get our stretch goal smashed You'll get more colours options So there's there's still a lot to play for
0: Yeah, and the link is in the bio as we say So you can just click that And you'll you'll see what it's all about But uh, have a good week And we'll speak to you next week See you later The blank page To some it's terrifying An obstacle to overcome But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity A blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures And characters in our head So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is... Write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow.
1: But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? And that's when we realized it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well.
0: And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy to use sections that will help you plan your story. So that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realized you need to plan how to let people read it. So we included a section relating to submissions.
1: We've created three editions of Page One. Standard, premium and exclusive Kickstarter edition. Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story, we truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps.
0: We can't wait to read what you come up with.
1: And remember, every story starts with Page One.